It's good to see you. It's good to be together. We're going to conclude our series, How to Neighbor, today. When God was creating the world, over and over again, we read in Genesis that God saw that it was good. He created, and it was good. He created some more, and it was good. Uh, Good, good. You keep seeing that word over and over again. There was no reason to believe that any of it was anything but good. But then God said something was not good in Genesis chapter 2, beginning of verse 18. This is in your bulletin insert, also be on the screen. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. Now that sounds like fun, but I have four kids, and we had enough trouble coming up with four names, so I can imagine trying to name everything. It says he gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. Although I wonder what, like, second place was here. Like, which animal came closest, right? I guess dogs are man's best friend, maybe. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. And I believe still today that it's not good for anyone to be alone. Now, now don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying everyone needs to get married because that's not for everybody. But I am saying that I believe that one of the things that we were created for, one of the things that we're wired for, is relationships. Human contact, human touch. We need each other. In other words, we weren't made for loneliness. I believe that. And as we've worked our way through this series, we, we've talked about several different things. We've talked about uh, racism, we've talked about people who are different than us in that, that situation. We've talked about uh, caring for orphans. We've talked about caring for kids in need. We've talked about empowering the poor. And today's topic is just as important because while I think that we can agree, hey, you know, obviously we weren't made for loneliness. We were made to, to be around people for relationships. The truth is there are a lot of lonely people in the world and in our communities, and, and that shouldn't be okay with us. We shouldn't just accept that. And if I asked you to think of what kind of person and what kinds of situations might be lonely, you would probably automatically think of older people, some elderly people that you know, uh, maybe someone who has lost a spouse, uh, maybe somebody who's in an empty nest situation and maybe has been for a while. And those are all valid thoughts. Those people probably deal with loneliness. But there is a growing problem all around us that we could refer to as relational Poverty. We talked a little bit about material poverty last week, and we touched on this idea, but you see, we need to understand that battling with loneliness is not just reserved for people who are actually physically alone a good portion of the time. Those people are probably lonely, but, but others, the truth is, in reality, you can be around a lot of people and still feel very alone. Some of you sit in this room where there are quite a few people, and it doesn't matter because you still feel very alone. You can be a stay-at-home mom and feel a deep nagging sense of loneliness. You can work around a lot of people. You can even love what you do. But if you don't have, uh, if you don't feel close to any of those people that you work with, you may find yourself plagued with a sense of longing for something more. And that something more is is some deeper relationships. Again, last week we talked mostly about material poverty. The, the, The main difference between material poverty and relational poverty is this. Material poverty is lacking the essentials to get through the day. Relational poverty is lacking the intimacy and connections to live a meaningful life. 
Again, you may have people all around you, but you, you don't feel like people care. You may have people all around you, but you don't feel like you can open up to anyone. You, you may have people all around you, but you don't feel like there's anyone you can really trust. This is becoming a, a bigger and bigger issue, and there are several reasons why. In fact, social experts would say these, these four are a big part of why this is happening, why relational poverty is becoming so widespread. The first is breakdown of families. When families break down, relationships break down, and loneliness sets in because distance becomes present. Suddenly you're, you're not as close to your family as you used to be because that, that family has broken down. And maybe you've been through this with, with divorce or, or something like that. It, it creates this distance and it creates a, a breeding ground for relational poverty. The second one is increased mobility. People just don't stay in one place nearly as often as they used to. People used to put down roots, and you just don't see that as often. We move around and around and around. You know, a lot of people my age and younger have, have moved significantly more times than some of you that have maybe lived in Winchester all your life, and you've never moved, and, and we, you know, it's just different. Years ago, generations would stay. You'd get a generation after generation after generation in the same place even on the same property, but now a lot of people don't stay very long. Heavy workloads. We are so busy. If you regularly ask people how they're doing, pay attention to how many of them answer that question with staying busy. And, and actually, we, we wear that sometimes as a badge of honor. And people say, how's it going up? Staying busy. Like, that's a great thing. It isn't always a great thing. Because we're too busy to connect on a deeper level with one another. And then the fourth one, rise of social media, most experts would say this is the biggest one that is contributing today, especially to the younger generations. Social media sometimes makes us feel like we're relationally rich. I have so many friends on there. But often all we're getting is a glimpse into someone's life, not that deep sense of intimacy. And in addition, that glimpse is often a carefully crafted image that doesn't reflect reality. The rise of social media may be the most dangerous of these theories because it can create increased loneliness while at the same time convincing us that we are relationally wealthy. It's a false sense of relational wealth. It's possible to fool ourselves, to convince ourselves that, that nobody with a thousand Facebook friends or a thousand Twitter followers could ever be lonely even though they could be and likely are at times. We all have a longing, a need for intimacy, for relationships, but experts say that some of the ways we deal with it, some of the ways we go about dealing with our loneliness, especially social media related, are actually ways that we defer the loneliness to later, which solves nothing. And so we have to acknowledge that there is loneliness among us, that some of us even here today, as we sit near other people and we say, oh, well, you're around people, you can't be lonely, we have to understand that there are people that experience loneliness, and even in a setting like this. And so the question for us today is not how do we defeat loneliness in our own lives, because honestly we need each other for that. The more important question is how do we show love to the lonely? And really what's, I'm, I'm going I'm to clue you in on something that's going to become clear as we work through this. The truth is what we're going to talk about today are ways that we should be loving everyone anyway, but ways that, that are specifically impactful to those who are dealing with loneliness. Now, there are countless answers to how to do that, but, but I think the best thing that we could do and what we'll spend the most of our time together today with is to look at some ways that Jesus himself showed love. 
You know, Jesus, you, you look through Scripture and you can say Jesus was the epitome of love. Well, we're going to look at three specific ways that he expressed that love and how that love can then be expressed through us, to other people, especially the lonely. And so the first way Jesus shows us how to love is to love with touch. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning of verse 1, it says, Large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you are willing... You can heal me and make me clean. And one thing that I love about what this man says is that he does not ask to be healed. He doesn't ask to be healed. He makes a statement here showing that he has no doubt that Jesus has the power to heal him. He knew exactly what power was in Jesus and what it was capable of. So often when we ask God for things, we go to him in prayer and we say, God, if you will, if you can, if it's okay with you, if and, and this guy just says, listen, I know you can do it. It's just up to you. He doesn't ask. He, he, he states his faith. And what you have to understand about this man is that he had leprosy, which might as well have been a social death sentence on top of the fact that it was excruciatingly painful. Leprosy was a skin disease that was so severe and so feared that you can go to the Old Testament and find a series of laws lit, written specifically about leprosy, what to do if you have it, where to go if you have it, what you are and aren't allowed to do if you have it, where you are and aren't allowed to go if you have it, what you have to do or don't or can't do if you've encountered somebody who has it. They were considered unclean, so we're talking about forced separation from the rest of society. Now, where's loneliness going to grow? In forced separation from society. According to several sources, the average lifespan of a person after they contract leprosy was about 10 years. It was a painful progression from muscle aches, joint pain, and fatigue to what we normally think about when we think about leprosy, unbearable skin rashes that were impossible to ignore both for the person experiencing it and for anybody who might encounter them walking down the road. No one wanted to be around someone with leprosy. And yet here is this man closer in proximity to Jesus in this moment than he probably had been to any other person without leprosy since he had been diagnosed, since he had come down with leprosy. He's probably only ever been, since that moment, this close to other lepers. And yet here he is kneeling before Jesus. A person with one of the most contagious diseases that there is kneels before Jesus. And here's my guess, and this, this is just the, the truth of it. There were other people around. My guess is when the leper came into the picture, they all moved away. Because that's what you did. If a leper came around, you got away because you don't want to contract it. Where lepers went, as sad as this is to say, people scattered. They had to announce their presence. They had to yell that they were coming into an area. They had to identify themselves as unclean. And yet here he is in front of Jesus, and this is what we read in verse 3. Jesus reached out and touched him. And I'm telling you, nobody saw that coming. Even though they knew who Jesus was and they knew what he was doing, they knew that he could heal, nobody touches a leper. He said, I am willing to be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Who knows when the last time this man had experienced the human touch was? Probably been a while. Nobody was touching him because nobody wanted to contract this disease. And while the disease was obviously taking a toll on this man, 
so was the relational poverty that came with it. Those dealing with leprosy were probably some of the most relationally poor people there were out there. And the truth is, you don't know how much you miss the human touch until you go without it. I'm sure of that. I'm not saying you need to be a hugger. Not everybody is. But in the life of a person who is dealing with any level of loneliness, sometimes a hug, a handshake, even a high five, some kind of human touch can make a huge difference. There was a cashier at a grocery store who began to notice, as I imagine you would if you worked in this kind of setting, he began to notice the same woman on the same day every week, at the same time, every week, doing her grocery shopping and getting in the same line, his line, every single time. It didn't matter how many other checkouts were open. It didn't matter uh, how long the line was for his. She would get in his line. And every week, she'd, he'd check out her groceries. She'd hand him the cash. And when he gave her the change, he would do this thing. And I, he, he couldn't even explain why he did it. And some of you may do this. He, he, just, he put his hand on hers when he gave her the change and said, have a great week. Simple, just a moment, and then she'd go on, take her groceries and leave. Every day, every Thursday, every week, for two years. Finally, the cashier was preparing to leave for college. He was no longer going to be working at this store, and so he decided, I need to, I need to know why. And so that last Thursday that he was working, as she got into his line and she, she came up, he decided to ask her why she always came to his line, why she was willing to wait, why she was willing to do whatever it took to be in his line, and here's what she said. Because every Thursday at 4.30, I give you money for my groceries. And every Thursday at 4.30, you put your hand on mine and you say, have a great week. That's the only time of the week another human being touches me. I can only imagine hearing those words broke his heart because reading them the first time, it, it broke mine. A loving touch, a loving hug, it can change things for people. Again, there, there are people that, you've you got to use you know, some, some wisdom in this because there are people that aren't comfortable with the same level as others, but you can usually figure that out. And that touch can make a difference in the life of someone who's dealing with loneliness. It's the touch. It's simple. It's, it's simple, but it's impactful. The second way we learn from Jesus to show love is by listening. We love by listening. Quite often today, people don't listen with the intent to understand. They listen with the intent to respond We'll reply, that's what we do. I do this. I'm very guilty of this. You know, if, if we're talking, don't, now don't assume this is happening, but it might be. I'm nodding my head along while you're talking like I know what you're talking about. What I'm actually doing is trying to come up with a witty reply or come back. That's what a lot of us do. And yet we have an opportunity to show love to people simply by actually listening to them. Actually listening to them. There's this cool story um, this thing that occurred shortly after Jesus was crucified, but before hardly anyone knew that he had risen. There was this time frame where, where word had not gotten out yet. And there were these two men walking down a road, and it was clear um, that these two men had faith in Jesus, but their faith in Jesus was very earthly. And what I mean by that is there were a lot of people, when Jesus died on the cross, that it broke them because their understanding, their expectation of what Jesus came for was to build a kingdom on this earth. And so they thought he was going to start the new Jerusalem and everything, you know, new Israel and everything was going to be on this earth. And so when he died, it messed up their view of this. And so these guys are walking along um, and they're very confused. In fact, you can imagine the level of confusion that would come into play when the person who's supposed to save the world is suddenly gone. And so Jesus now risen from the dead, but they don't recognize him. 
is walking along near them, and we read this in Luke chapter 24, beginning of verse 17. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? Jesus jumps into the conversation here, and he says, what are you talking about? And they stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. See, you, you don't realize what's going on, or else you would know why we're so upset. Now, Jesus could have responded in any number of ways here, but the most simple and effective way would have been to say, ta-da, here I am. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm here. You don't have to be sad anymore. Quit your worrying. Stop being confused because here I stand. These guys were saddened and confused by what has happened. But, but instead of doing that, instead of probably scaring them to death, Jesus chooses to hear them out. He gives them the opportunity to explain what it is that truly is saddening them, what they're confused about. He says, what things? What things? He, he, he just, hey, tell me what's going on. They said, the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said he was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty religious teacher in the eyes of God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. And so he, he hears them out and they explain. They say, this is what we understood about him. And Jesus does eventually tell them who he is. He does eventually explain that. But I feel like what we see here is a model for how we should listen that looks nothing like how we normally listen. So often if we have the answer or think we have the answer, we don't listen. We simply talk. And we'll jump in with the answer. We'll jump in with what we say. And I think we're probably all guilty of this. But sometimes the act of listening and then responding can convey a strong sense of respect and of love. Sometimes people just need to be heard out. Sometimes these people just need to talk to process something. They don't need an answer. They just need somebody to listen. And to the lonely especially, a listening ear can mean the world. I want you to try this. The next time you get the urge to ask someone, how's it going? Add a word to that. Add the word really to the end of that. How's it going really? And don't accept simple answers. Don't accept simple answers. Actually make yourself available to listen. And for some of us, this will be tough because we haven't done this before. We don't actually listen very often. But if you go to somebody and say, how's it going really? You invite them to actually share and then it's your responsibility to sit back and actually listen. And if they share a problem and you think you know the answer, don't jump in. Just listen. It can mean the world to somebody to be heard, to be listened to. Sometimes in the midst of discontentment, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of feeling lonely, that someone would take the time to truly listen can make such a difference. I've heard it pointed out that maybe it's no coincidence that God gave us only one mouth but two ears. Is it possible that it could benefit us to, to listen twice as much as we speak? It probably would do us a lot of good. It would also be a big change for a lot of us because that's not usually how we function and yet a worthwhile change because I, I truly believe that listening can be one of the best ways we express love to the lonely and really to anyone. And then the third way Jesus shows us how to love is to love with our time. Jesus had about 33 or so years on this earth, and, and only about three and a half of those were spent doing ministry. You know, those years, that, once he started to travel around and teach and 
and heal and do all the things that he did, and he fit a lot into that short time frame. He seemed to always be on the move. He was always going somewhere. He was, he was healing people and preaching to crowds and, and teaching and even feeding people. I was, I was reading through, um, I'm doing the, the Bible in a Year thing that a lot of us are doing that we committed to several weeks ago, and, and I recently read one of the stories where, um, where Jesus has been teaching. He's been teaching all day, and, and Scripture actually tells us he's been, he's been teaching so much that he and the disciples haven't even taken the time to eat. And so they decide they're going to get a little bit of time away, and so they get on a boat and they begin to cross this body of water, but people find out where they're going, and by the time Jesus and the disciples get there, the people are already there waiting for them. And Jesus still, he goes and he teaches again. He doesn't really get that break. The the truth is, as you read through the Gospels, what you see about Jesus is he didn't seem to mind being interrupted. And I love this story from Luke chapter 5. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. Beginning in verse 17, one day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea, as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. You see, Jesus is doing here what Jesus is often doing, which is teaching. And he's in this house, and and there were many people around, and word's gotten out that he's there, and people keep coming. In fact, at this point, if you wanted to come see Jesus, you might approach the house, but that's all the closer you were getting, because there were that many people. And yet people kept coming because they kept hearing, Jesus is nearby. This is not a chance we get every day. Verse 18, some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowds. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Now, I've always wondered, are we condoning vandalism in this story? Maybe. Maybe. But they did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. And the truth is, some of us do the minimum and hope our friends will find their own way to Jesus. So we could probably learn something from these guys. They do what it takes. They decided nothing was going to stop them. Just getting this guy onto the roof had to be a challenge. I mean, let's be real here. You continue those verses. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, Jesus had options here because he was in the middle of teaching. And my guess is that people were hanging on to every word, but, but Jesus seems to have no issue with this interruption, nor with the hole in the roof, for that matter. He, he, just, he just deals with it, and he says, says this in verse 20, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? That's blasphemy, for only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Those moments are also some of my favorites in Scripture, where somebody has a thought or something in their hearts and Jesus calls it out loud. That's got to kind of be like, well, we didn't even say that, but he knew that they were thinking it. He knew that they were thinking it. He says, why do you say in your hearts, It is easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. The only thing that would have made it better is he went back out the way he came back in. Here's the thing. So often when we're interrupted, 
We don't handle it well. So often we tell people, I just don't have time for that. And what we're really saying, and, and we need to hear this, I need to hear this, what we're really saying is I don't have time for you. Not just I don't have time for this, I don't have time for you. The truth is, sometimes what we see as an interruption, what we interpret as an interruption, is actually what we should be focusing on, even if it's just for a moment. Jesus was in the midst of teaching, and from the scripture here, it doesn't seem that he even hesitates to stop and address this situation. The man being lowered in front of him, and he heals him. And it's probably more effective than any words he was saying that day and showing these people what Jesus was all about. It certainly expressed more love than anything he could have said out loud. This wasn't the plan for the day. This wasn't what was necessarily supposed to happen, but it didn't matter because Jesus was willing to take time. And in a lot of situations, that really can mean the world. I've heard it said this way, don't let the urgent crowd out the important. And so often we, we just say, well, this has to get done now. So often what we're busy doing, what we can't put off, what has a deadline, gets in the way of interruptions that in truth might be more important, not necessarily in your life, but in the life of someone else. And that other person, if you give them even just a small amount of time, could see that as an act of love. And that matters, that's important. You see, we have opportunities to show love to the lonely, really to, to anyone, to show love to anyone, with a touch, with a listening ear, with time, every single day. And, and, and what happens is, we get caught up in ourselves. We get too busy. We have our own priority list and we get focused on me. And we ignore, we miss those opportunities. The, the problem is, we so often ignore those opportunities and we end up not showing enough love. And if we're followers of Jesus, that reflects on Jesus. See, there are people out there that would say, well, the Christians I know just aren't very loving. And you would say, well, that's not fair. They just don't know the right Christians. That's a fine answer. But the truth is, they know some people who claim to be followers of Jesus who don't show very much love. So it may be a fair statement based on the Christians they know. Some might say something to this effect. I know some Christians and they say they're all about love, but I'm not even sure that they love me. They don't show it very often. But the bigger issue then comes in here. If we're not intentional about showing love, how will they know that we love them? And if they don't believe that we love them, why would they believe the God we serve loves them? If, if we as followers of Jesus don't reflect love, how can we expect them to understand the love God has for them? If we don't reflect love, it's just us saying God loves them. They have no representation of it in human form. And yet if we reflect love to them, how much more that might they believe that the God we serve loves them? See, if there are two things that everyone needs to know, everyone, not just the lonely, but everyone needs to know, it's that someone loves them, and that God loves them. Everyone needs to know that. We have opportunities every day to show love to people, and we miss them. Those are also missed opportunities to show God's love to them. They're never going to come to believe if they don't see that in us. And so this week, you're going to have opportunities 
whatever your life looks like, walking through school, walking through work, whatever your life looks like, wherever you go, whoever you're around, you are going to have opportunities to show love. The question is, will you show them love? It might take more than just a moment. It might take more than, than just a touch. It might take more than just a listening ear. But those are fantastic places to start because so often we struggle to even love in those ways. As we've gone through this series, we've talked about how to neighbor, and it all started with that statement that, that, that Jesus called us to love our neighbor as ourselves. I think for the purposes of what we're talking about, right, we can throw the as ourselves part out and just say, listen, we need to love our neighbors. And if we're not doing that, we are not representing the God who loves us. The God who loves them. The God who wants them to know that he loves them. Let's not miss any opportunities to share that love. Let's pray. God, sometimes when we talk about things like this, what I want to pray is, God, help us get out of our own way. Because so often, what keeps us from showing this kind of love is just, Busyness or selfishness or priorities. And I pray that you would help us to see how important it is to show love, even in the small things, even in the small moments. But if we're not showing love, we're still showing them something, and it's not you. God, we are thankful for your word and the way that it continues to challenge us. I pray that as we continue to study your word every single week together and on our own, that, that you would continue to challenge us. We wouldn't just hear these, these stories from Scripture, these commands from Scripture, but that we would put them into action in our lives. Help us to see the opportunities even today to show this kind of love to people. God, as we move into a time of communion, I pray that you would help us to focus on the reason for all of this, that you made a way for us to come back. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. Help us to focus on that as we prepare our hearts for communion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.